Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food Disruptors, an IFT podcast that brings you the latest insights and perspectives from some of the brightest minds in the science of food. Each episode, our guests discuss the ever-changing intersection of entrepreneurship, innovation, and science and their role in advancing the global food system. On today's podcast, you'll hear from Maria Villasario and April Rinnie on where they see the world going, particularly as it relates to food, economic practices, emerging technologies, and the importance of sustainability. We'll discuss the future of work, the role of innovation in the food system, and the importance of collaboration across sectors. I'm your host, Matt Teagarden. Let's get started. April, you've written extensively on the new economy. So I'm, I'm curious, could you share a few major global trends that you anticipate for 2020 and beyond? And of course, right now, I'm particularly interested in the international impact of COVID-19. Sure, Matt. Thank you again. And it's a great question to tee up our conversation today, also because there are so many trends. <laughs> you know, there are economic <laughs> trends, social trends, policy trends, political trends, trends related to health, food, and sort of the list goes on. Um, I do think it's important to keep in mind that many of these trends that I'll talk about and we'll talk about today, I think, were already in place pre-COVID-19. But what we're seeing is that COVID-19 in many ways has been a sort of accelerant. Things are playing out faster. In some cases, these trends are playing out more intensely than would have otherwise been the case. So a couple of the big ones, you know, in terms of global economic trends, the biggest ones that I see stem from the fact that we're realizing more than ever just how interconnected and interdependent that we are and how painful pausing or disrupting these connections even temporarily can be. So on the one hand, we see pretty much a dampening, if not an outright halt, of a lot of international everything, I think particularly, you know, travel and tourism. We see airlines are down 95% from three months ago. Trade and supply chains are challenged on the whole. That's not unique to food. That's really across the um, industrial spectrum. I think, you know, manufacturing, we look at, it's been very much hampered. And even when places start to open up, as we're starting to see with China, they find that, you know, customers aren't necessarily there. And that's especially the case when those customers are international. Mm. So, you know, personally, I typically work in about 20 different countries a year. Not this year, right? <laughs> it has both a, a, a sort of organizational level and a societal level impact, but also I think individually, a lot of professionals are being affected as well. But on the other hand, I want to point out that while we're seeing this kind of contraction internationally in terms of a lot of commerce and trade and so forth. On the other hand, we are seeing incredible international cooperation and even in some ways solidarity when it comes to COVID-19. You know, it's, it's almost as though we have a common borderless enemy to fight and we're coming together in ways that we wouldn't typically otherwise. So, you know, how that plays out we'll see in terms of um, the race for a vaccine and so forth. But it's we're sort of seeing both sides, the flip sides of the same coin. Now, I also see from an economic perspective that we're in a few different ways heading towards a more, I would call it regional approach, a more regional networks, um, whether that's regions of a given country or regions of the world. And that's a trend that I expect to persist because we're looking at scale larger than simply local, but a little bit safer, you could say, than, than strictly global. 
And then I think the trend, the economic trend that is certainly, it's sort of the elephant in the room, um, is the just enormous upward trend right now in unemployment figures worldwide. And I hesitate to call that a long-term trend because we just don't know yet. But regardless, it will have a huge effect on how other economic and social trends play out. So when I turn and look briefly at some of the social and cultural trends, I think the, the biggest ones that I see are you know, how we work and you know, work from home. Used to be, I've been focused on the future of work for quite some time now and used to give, I'm guessing I still will give keynotes on things like remote work and distributed work. And it would always sort of raise eyebrows. I don't think that's going to be the case anymore. Yeah. Um, also, you know, how we're spending our time, more cooking, more gardening, more time with family. Um, I find it interesting that previously there was a lot of focus on optimization of every second. That's not really happening as much anymore. Now, I guess the big questions, though, the really, for me, revolve around what happens next. You know, these are trends that we're seeing right now that I think will persist into much of 2020 and beyond. But we really have to see how does reopening go? Do we experience relapses? Um, you know, how much work from home? We know it will be more than it was before, but people are hardwired to be social, whether that's professionally or just, you know, in our personal and family lives. And so virtual is okay in a bind, but it still has its limits. And so I think that the direction and the magnitude of some of these trends we will be living through that in the coming months. But the ones that, you know, I just sort of spelled out big picture are where we want to look to better understand the path ahead. That's really interesting. And I, I do want to touch on this global um, global aspect that you mentioned. I mean, you, you talk about working in, in tens of different countries over the course of a year, and, and obviously that is going to be a shift in work for you. But this idea of, of global citizenship. So you describe yourself as a global citizen. And I'm wondering if you can give me a little bit of an idea of, of what you mean by that. And then also talk about the role of global citizenship and, and how it plays into climate change and the role of regional economies. And how does the food system tie into that? Yeah, what an amazing question. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll, I'll try to keep this brief. Um, I will admit I could talk about it all day. But um, to tee things up, I think Let's let me just spend a minute talking about what global citizenship is and isn't as I see it. So, you know, when I say global citizenship, I don't mean carrying a bunch of passports or traveling a lot or or speaking many languages. Um, I also don't mean multinational companies. The term citizen itself is tricky um, because for many people today, it implies a passport, or borders, or the census, you know, immigration, and so forth. But the fact is, you know, I've talked to lots of people about what's a better term, and there isn't one right now. I wish, you know, we, we could say humans, but, or humanity, because that's really what binds us together as people on the globe. But, you know, I've kind of acknowledged that citizen is still the best term that we've got, even though I'd like to think that 10 years from now, we have a better phrase for what I'm about to describe. So when I say global citizenship, what I do mean I'm really talking about our values, our priorities, and fundamentally what it means to recognize our interdependence as humans in the world today. So increasingly, we're facing borderless challenges 
That includes you know, climate change, intolerance, a pandemic. These are all borderless challenges, but we don't really have borderless solutions yet. And we often remain stuck within our borders, and wh whether those borders are geopolitical or mental, whether they're imposed by somebody else or whether they're of our own creation. So I like to say that global citizenship sees beyond these borders and it understands that as humans, we share far more in common than that which divides us. So you could think of this as an ethos of we rather than me first. You might have heard that. Um, it's also for me a celebration of diversity, collaboration, and a knowledge that diverse systems are actually also the most resilient. So when it comes to regional economies and the food system, I think of global citizenship in a few different ways. On the one hand, it's an understanding, a, sort of an appreciation and a celebration of other cultures and also other cuisines. It's also a deep desire to genuinely listen to and learn from locals in whatever part of the world you happen to be in. Because I find in my work and travels globally, like there is just so much we can learn from one another. Now, that said, at the same time, I think global citizenship and this, this sense of interdependence and this sense of borderless challenges, it also lands us with an understanding of the effects of our actions. So with regards to the food system, you know, this means eating locally whenever possible, making food choices with lower environmental impact. Now, more broadly, when we look at how this could play out, not just with regards to the food system and business models, but um, business more broadly, this um, really has an impact on how we could think about how we structure our economy moving forward. And I think, I'm guessing that some people who are listening today may have heard of what's called stakeholder capitalism. So this is capitalism that takes into account the needs of all stakeholders, so workers, suppliers, the communities that you serve, rather than simply looking at this from the perspective of investment and shareholder return. So I like to say that global citizenship is actually much more aligned with a stakeholder approach. Um, I also acknowledge that's probably a whole other topic, so um, there's more I could say, but uh, I'll, I'll pass it back to you. Well, and I think, you know, it's so, so interesting. You, you talk about COVID-19 as an accelerator. And as you were speaking, I was thinking through the COVID-19 lens, as is impossible not to do during this time, <laughs> right? And you have parts parts of maybe that global citizenship aspect might be more challenging, such as, you know, gaining access to listen, you know, more intensely to locals and things like that. But I think I almost wonder if it can accelerate some of the ideals that global citizenship is all about. Absolutely. I mean, from my perspective, it's this sense, and I, I don't like using the term enemy, but when, if we think about COVID as this common borderless enemy that is hitting people and, and communities, regardless of where you live, regardless of how much you earn, um, you know, it, it really is, it's, it's incredibly, um, how do I say this? I mean, it's destabilizing for sure, but it also is bringing people together in ways that wouldn't have happened before. Right. And I've had many conversations recently, actually, this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but uh, I'm used to being, people often call me a sort of cross-cultural bumblebee, where I'm cross-pollinating <laughs> ideas and, and traveling in, in a lot of different places and so forth. And that's hard to do 
when we can't travel. And yet the need for and the value of cross-cultural pollinators, if you will, in a virtual world, I think is going to start to be even more important because we we're waking up to this recognition of just how interdependent we are and we need to maintain those ties. But if we relied on those ties being through physical travel in the past, we're going to need some virtual equivalents. And so I think, you know, it just gets really interesting in terms of opening up opportunities, possibly roles, possibly, you know, who knows, platforms and businesses and so forth that didn't exist before to meet this need. Right. Well, I, I do want to bring in Maria here. So Maria, as a food scientist, I imagine that, that you also have a unique perspective on, on this concept of global citizenship and its role in our, in our planet's sustainability. What are your thoughts here? This is an incredibly complex topic, but it's a topic that touches upon so many aspects of food and the science of food. I would like to start by talking a little about the, the complexity of our food system Our food system is very developed, uh, very sophisticated, but at the same time, it is facing very serious global challenges. And we're going through transformations that they are generational in nature. We're going through chronic issues like climate change and trade, and we're experiencing some very acute uh, pains like the pandemic that we're going through right now or extreme weather phenomena. And as we see the climate and environmental changes rise, we also see a correlation with geopolitical tensions. We are going through a population growth that continues to accelerate and puts a lot of pressure on demand for food. And when we need more food, we need to grow our global trade, and which makes us more dependent upon one another. Also, we are seeing a number of changes with consumers and societies. It's amazing to see the spread of global cuisine. What used to be aspirational in the past and exotic for many of us, it has now become very much within reach. We see um, uh, uh, global cuisines uh, moving and while they're moving from one place of the planet to the other, we're also seeing a merge of consumer choices and options that people Uh, exercise. But all of this is happening while we are experiencing a lot of food insecurity. Mm. And food insecurity is rife among the urban poor, the rural poor, and the agrarian poor around the world. And the other thing that is important to mention here, it is actually the regulations and the protection policies that are asymmetrical in nature and, and imbalanced. So among all of this complexity, we are seeing changes that uh, are driven by consumers and societies as well as policymakers. And we are seeing more transparency on where the food is coming from. People want to know what's in their food because they want to manage their health and wellness and have better outcomes. And also, uh, we see a, 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 a value that we put in actually feeding the world and making sure that we are reducing, we're eliminating the inequalities and the terrible consequences that malnutrition has later in life. So all of this is a very complex, a very, it's a great environment for scientists from many different colors uh, to actually work in and drive outcomes. I want to talk a little about the science of food and mm. The, the, the very important role that food scientists play in all this. It's really a, a, it's been a tremendous effort 
to to make food safer, to make food more nutritious, to make food more to make food more available and more affordable. And what we see more and more is we see more of a a, a the, the 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 formation of an intersection between science and technology, which is inevitable. But I do want to highlight here how important it is to understand that science cannot does not work in isolation. Science does not work in a vacuum. And in the context of global citizenship, science has always transcended borders, but scientists do not operate in a vacuum. Well, and I'm curious on on both of your thoughts here as well. You know, what, especially in light of the of the p- current pandemic situation, what are the challenges and opportunities that are there um, and emerging uh, that might have a direct impact on the sustainability of our planet's food supply? April, I'll start with you. Yeah, this is such a such a great and again another complex question and i'm going to pick up on a couple of themes that uh, maria mentioned as well so i should give a caveat i guess at the outset is that i i'm someone who tends to see challenges as opportunities in disguise so i sort of again see these as two sides of the same coin from where i stand the single biggest challenge that i see in the here and now is the fragility of our, you know, largely industrial consumer-facing systems. Now, this is not just the food system. There are many systems that relate to food, you know, such as transportation, that are also proving to be quite fragile in the face of COVID-19. And that doesn't mean that we don't have good infrastructure. We have very good infrastructure. But when there's a human health hazard and you don't want to get on any form of public transportation, for example, that creates a series of ripple effects. So we've built the infrastructure that tends to be big and centralized, which is strong, but it turns out it's not very nimble in times of shock. Now, I focus a lot on the future of work and, you know, in, on many levels, who's working, how we're working, where we're working, etc. And it's increasingly clear to me that many of our current food system challenges aren't so much about food as they are about people. Now, here in the U.S., and again, this isn't specific to food, but it plays out in some really interesting ways. So we have a labor market and a labor force and a set of labor policies that over time have developed so that, you know, health insurance attaches to a job rather than a person. So when you have the number of people we have right now losing their job, that's not just about loss of livelihood, that's about loss of healthcare protection. And this isn't intended to be political in any way, shape or form. I mean, we could take this conversation to pretty much any country and you realize what does it mean to have uh, a large chunk of the population whose health is in a precarious situation, right? Now, this is the U.S., And I really want to keep this in global context so we can head to emerging markets and this kind of precariousness and fragility becomes really clear. So the World Bank estimates, most recent estimate last week, that half, now I'm not, like this is not a typo, half of all jobs across sub-Saharan Africa are expected to be lost due to COVID-19. Now, I've worked across Africa. I've managed teams across Africa. I have tremendous respect for all of the 54 countries on the continent. 
it's not just one place. But I will admit, I still can't wrap my head around the magnitude of this figure. And as you know, you know, this is also where there's just extreme food poverty already. So bringing this back, not just to IFT and and food science and the role of, of, of food science, technology, and innovation. But, you know, it's interesting. I recognize that the future of work is a very different topic from food science and from IFT's mission per se. But I actually think that there is a huge opportunity for food system stakeholders as a whole to become more proactive around the future of work moving forward. You know, this isn't just food producers. Um, this is also food services, right, which is one of the largest sources of employment in the U.S. and in any country in the world. And so I think about, wow, OK, if we're looking at a fragile system and one of the weakest points or you know, the greatest sources of fragility relate to people and human safety, not necessarily food safety, although they are related, that to me opens up also it's a huge challenge. It's also a really big opportunity for how the food system and food system stakeholders as a whole look at their roles moving forward. So, you know, that's one piece that I look at. Another piece to, to echo Maria is food poverty, again, related to what I was just talking about, but also its own issue on its own with or without COVID. But again, just another really sobering statistic. According to the World Food Program, it's expected that food poverty will double this year compared to 2019. Mm. Um, that's 265 million people worldwide, right? And obviously food poverty is an economic issue. It's a supply chain issue. It's also a distribution issue. And again, you know, lots of distribution challenges, again, both domestic and global in scope. But I still think this is a huge opportunity um, for the food system as a whole to rethink um, how we're supply, producing, supplying, and distributing food, you know, and, and I know that we could quickly probably go down down a very deep rabbit hole here, um, <laughs> but I'm looking at this from the perspective of everything from, you know, regenerative business models and not just agriculture, but regeneration as a concept. Um, I'm looking at what would it mean to invest more in regional food systems. Um, I will say, I think that the recent stimulus funding package here in the U.S., it was a huge missed opportunity in this regard in that a lot of the smaller um, food producers didn't share in, in a lot of the bounty of the, of the funding package. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think there's just one, one little footnote I want to note here as we look at challenges and opportunities, and it's more on the challenges front. And, you know, it's easy to look at COVID-19 as a sort of shock. It was something that happened very fast. Um, largely unexpected, although I would say it shouldn't, it wasn't entirely unexpected. We right. knew that something like this would happen at some point. We just didn't know what it would be or how it would show up. But nonetheless, the fact that so much has changed so fast, it's definitely a shock. But shocks aren't are the only kind of challenge that we face when it comes to systemic fragility and instability. Um, you know, longer term trends are another one. And so I sort of look at the difference between shocks and trends. Right. Two great trends are climate change and population growth. Right. These are both going to have a massive effect on our food systems. Trends are more kind of like slow burning pressure points, whereas um, shocks are more like you just ratchet the temperature up in an instant. And trends are easier to ignore because their full impact isn't necessarily felt today. But we know they're there. We know they're important to address. 
And yet all too often we ignore them until crisis hits and we're sort of in triage mode. Today, I look at it and I think, you know, the food system isn't particularly well adapted to either shocks or trends. And I say this, you know, very big picture. So it's fragile, whether we look at today in the light of COVID or whether we look at 2050 and expected population growth. But at the same time, I look at that and I go, okay, so that means there's just that much more opportunity, short term, medium term and long term for food system stakeholders to pursue. Yeah, Maria, I'm really interested for you to fill in at this point on, you know, what are some of these emerging challenges or if you want to call them opportunities in disguise um, that could have an impact on the sustainability of our planet's food supply? Sure. We have certainly learned a lot in the past couple of months, and some of those insights may not be new to us, but for sure they're bringing focus on what needs to be done with urgency and with utmost priority. Um, Echoing what April has said, I would also like to highlight as perhaps the number one observation is the, the flexibility of our supply chains. Our food supply chains have been built to be highly efficient, just in time, and mightily globalized. Just to put things into perspective, we have approximately one month of inventory in the US system. This is amazing for a country of this size. But this crisis has brought to focus the need to build a system that is more flexible and more resilient and can show agility when agility is required. The second learning is that that of how we depend on total capabilities, and that is people, systems, and processes to run our food system, our food chains efficiently and deliver food to people, food that is safe, food that is nutritious, and food that can be economically distributed. We have done a really good job considering the complexity of the supply chains. We have done a very good job with food safety. But what this crisis is highlighting is the importance to step up our capabilities when it comes to employee health and safety in the workplace. And in combination, to put those two together to make sure that the production system is robust all the way from the first mile to the last mile. The third lesson is the changing behaviors of consumers and societies at large. We don't know yet how these changes will pan out. But what we do know is that consumers are changing. They're forced to change. So we have seen a lot of um, uh, evolution in drivers for consumer behavior uh, over the past 10 to 15 years from a, from a society that was primarily focused on value. We have seen a shift to values. Um, so products that used to fulfill the consumer needs in terms of quality and cost that's not sufficient anymore. People want to know more about their product. They want to know that the the brand and the manufacturer of the brand they actually um, have values and they ex- and, and and they practice those values. Um, it's interesting to see how this is going to pan out because um, we are going through a recession. Uh, we are seeing a lot of poverty, as April mentioned. We are seeing now levels of unemployment and really socioeconomic strife that we have not seen in recent history. So it is fair to assume 
that consumers will be looking for value. They will be looking for low, for, for low cost. But it is difficult to imagine that people will abandon the values and the, the need to, to trust the food that they eat because we have seen this, um, we've seen this, um, this trend um, build up steadily for a number of years now. So as we move uh, through this crisis and coming out of this crisis, it is very important to keep in mind value and values. Excellent. I think you're you're touching really well on a lot of points that we uh, we just discussed in another episode of, of Food Disruptors. Actually, when where we do- took a deep dive into some of these consumer behaviors. So um, I'm definitely going to direct listeners to to pay attention to that episode as well um, if they want more insights on that because there there is some disruption here with with the pandemic. That you know some of this might be a blip, but some of it might cause some of these consumer attitudes to to completely shift. Speaking of shifting, you know, April on your website, one of your your major questions is a big one um, and explores, you know, where you see the the world heading. And so I'm going to ask you the big question, you know, where are we going? Yeah, what a question, right? <laughs> like, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> but no, I, I I take this in all seriousness. But also, I mean, it is quite interesting for me because. I have been focused, you know, people would call me a futurist, a future of work, future of transportation, a future of travel and tourism, future of, you know, fill in the blank. And it's inevitably hard to, quote unquote, predict the future. And uh, I always say that anyone who tells you who, who, that, they can, that they can predict the future, um, they definitely cannot. <laughs> you know, this, is, this isn't about having the crystal ball. I would say, though, that even my role has become exponentially harder in the last three months to sort of just map out the the set of possible scenarios, right? Looking towards the future, a lot of it, it's not about predicting the future. It's certainly not about controlling the future, but it is about preparing for as many possible realities as you as you can fathom, as you can imagine. And, you know, I feel like in the past, we would you could come up with dozens of future scenarios and they all kind of, you didn't know which one was going to work out or come to bear. And, and typically none of them fully come to bear. But you, the purpose of sort of future um, forecasting is to map out the realm of possibilities. And then as the future unfolds, you sort of take threads from those different scenarios and you weave them together into a cloth that more or less resembles reality, again, as it's evolving. With COVID, I feel like we've just been dealt the the biggest curveball because there are now literally thousands, millions of possible scenarios that could play out locally, regionally, nationally, globally, and so forth. So it feels like this is a big caveat, but we are truly in the midst of what I call a world in flux, right? Pretty much everything is in flux. It's in change. Health is in change, is is in flux. Um, the food system is in flux. Financial markets are in flux. Climate is in flux. Education is in flux. The list sort of goes on. Now, when when there are those days where I feel like the amount of change and uncertainty and unknown, which just keeps coming at us, you know, when it feels like too much, I do try to remind myself that at the same time, we are collectively living through one of the most extraordinary times in our history. 
And I, you know, I don't want this to sound trite, but I do have to pause and reflect that that in and of itself, to be alive at this moment in history, it's a sort of privilege to, to bear witness to how much we don't know, right? And the actions and decisions that we take in this time will have a profound effect on where the world actually heads, you know, far more so than if we were talking about times of peace and calm. And for somebody who has a role like I do, you know, I've never in my entire career felt like the, um, the importance of, for lack of a better phrase, kind of getting it right, the decisions that we make in the coming weeks and months will have an outsized effect on, you know, your question of where the world actually heads. So where the world heads, if I were to boil this down to one single, you know, question or crux around which we could revolve a lot of this stuff, a lot of the, the, the related topics, um, I think that more than anything, where the world heads revolves fundamentally around whether we, you know, as humanity, whether we come together as a result of this pandemic or whether we're driven further apart. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we're able to get through this and build business, implement reforms and sort of collectively rise to this occasion in ways that reduce inequality, then honestly, I think we could be ushering in a new era, like a future we could be more excited about than we ever would have imagined six months ago. And you know, get that inequality itself is very complex and it's systemic and it's also um, place-based and it has many different facets. But you know, Maria brought this up as well, and I'm, I'm glad she did because I think we could probably spend so much of our time just on inequality vis-a-vis the food system and how it plays out in in different ways. Um, but that's you know, that's one side of where the future could head. We could also emerge from our current reality and find that you know inequality has increased for whatever reason. And in that case, a very different kind of future is going to play out. And, you know, I, I think we can easily, if we want to keep talking about this, we can we can tease it out further. Um, at the end of the day, I like to think of myself as a realistic optimist. Um, I've spent so much time in countries and places that are really, really challenging where you wonder how can we, you know, how does innovation possibly take place? Um, how do people possibly rise to the occasion? But in fact, the challenge challenges like what we're experiencing right now are also what can often bring out the best in people, right? What did the Great Depression lead to? It led to the New Deal. That, that was a momentous occasion where not just business, but government and policymakers and social sector organizations also stepped into new shoes, new roles, you know, and I think that if I look at it from that perspective, and, you know, it's not naive optimism, it's grounded in my experiences, it's grounded in observations and spending time, you know, in most of the pockets of, of the blue marble that we live on today. But wherever you go, you know, humans are resilient beyond imagination. But if the system within which we live and work and seek to thrive is broken, or, you know, if that systemic inequality persists, then any kind of resilience is infinitely harder to affect. So, you know, I realize this, my answer, it's, it's somewhat vague and part of that is intentional because what I really want us to do is stretch our minds and pause and think about 
what are those key questions that will have the most significant effect on which direction the world heads? You know, we're at sort of an inflection point, and I don't know which way it will go. I can I can paint out a series of scenarios in both directions. Um, what I hope we can do is that we do not give up on our capacity as humans together, but also this incredible possibility of building back even better than before. I really, I, I really like that perspective and and appreciate the the realistic uh, optimism as well. You know, um, I think that's a good perspective to have. And I do want to bring this, you know, back to the the idea of the global food supply, Maria. I, you know this made me think a little bit about some of your comments on, on some of the challenges and opportunities that you previously mentioned. Um, where, do you, where do you see the world's global food supply going? The food supply has to be seen and addressed within the context of a food systems approach. And collaborations are absolutely critical. Collaborations among stakeholders collaborations among scientific disciplines and collaborations um, among um, uh, society, government, private, um, the private sector, academia, nonprofit and NGOs. We really need to uh, look at this as a total system. It is easier said than done, but it is imperative to the success. If we're going to make um, meaningful uh, changes for the future, we need to really work at this uh, holistic and systemic and holistic approach. What we have seen shaping up is changes on the demand side, changes in convergence within the value chains, and we are seeing the creation of, of new uh, and effective production systems. For instance, we have seen a, a growing demand for alternative proteins. We are seeing uh, more and more big data and advanced analytics entering the food manufacturing process or the agricultural process. And we are seeing uh, the effective deployment of new systems like precision agriculture, um, uh, microbiome technologies, and so forth. This is going to continue to happen because this is based on a trend. But what needs to happen in addition to this is we need to have some very fast responses to how the supply chains are today and how they need to be evolved so that they can be more agile. And it's important here to consider the needs of, lo of local communities, regions, and global communities. And supply chain is not a one monolithic entity. So it's important to look at the agriculture part, the conversion part, the manufacturing, the distribution part. And those solutions will have to be dependent, not just on economic and supply chain terms, but also they will have to be dependent on societal needs. We need to look at how we're designing food for pleasure, for sustenance, but also for nutrition. We need to look at the latest developments in, in, in uh, personalization. 
We also need to make sure that uh, food safety and quality continue to be absolutely paramount. And it is fair to say that integrating technologies from the digital and data analytics from those spaces, they will actually advance the food safety. And the last but not least, in fact, this is, this is the, the generational opportunity is we need to do all of this with food security and sustainability in mind. With regards to um, um, some predictions with regards to what technologies will make a difference, this crisis will speed up some game-changing innovations at the interface of food science, biology, and technology. But we must remember that technology alone is not going to have a lasting effect. Technology has to have a meaning, and this is where the scientific community has a tremendous opportunity to step up and, and identify what this meaning is in the current, um, in the current uh, climate. Also, data science is going to unlock, unlock a lot of information that we did not have previously available. So for instance, when it comes to food safety, we will be able to develop better and more robust probabilistic exposure models so that we can avoid as opposed to deal with, um, with disasters. Or we can actually do a better job at developing food that is more stable so that we can distribute this food to the populations that need it. And as I said earlier on, it is extremely important that we foster and we drive harder interdisciplinary collaboration among different scientists and collaboration across borders. I would like to finish this, this, uh, this, this answer by uh, drawing attention to the importance of trust. Consumers are telling us that they want to trust the food that they eat, not just for themselves, but also they want to know that this food is trustworthy for the world. So as we develop those technologies and we drive innovation and we address the deficiencies of today's system, it is important that we pay attention to the building blocks of trust, which is honesty, benevolence, and competency. Well, I think this is a really, really good segue into my next question. So, you know, both of you have, have talked about previously in, in other interviews the importance of emerging technology and venture capital support as, you know, critical components to sustainability of the food industry. You know, I think that... Maria, what you were just talking about in terms of trust also plays kind of a big part in that. Um, but I'm curious on your thoughts about, you know, what's some of the emerging technology that you're seeing to be disruptive in the industry and and why you think it's disruptive? April, I'm going to throw it over to you first. Yeah, this is great. And as Maria was talking just then, I had the same thought, like, oh, this is great. Just so many complementarities. And I think for me today, it's such a joy to join you both because I'm really looking at the food system as one system amongst many that I've looked at over time. And so when I look at the importance of emerging technologies and the role of VC, I am looking at it from the perspective, yes, of the food industry and food systems, but also those other systems that touch the food system and impact it in some way, even though we're not necessarily talking about the production or consumption of food itself. So with that kind of preface, the emerging technology that I'm most excited about today really relates to how we connect. And 
I don't mean that in terms of the number of likes you have or followers that you have, but rather in terms of how we match needs and haves, how we match supply and demand, and how we can expand access you know, to goods and services, to information, to opportunities, like you name it, but just access-based business models in helpful ways. And the crux of my interest in this, sort of the, the core of my enthusiasm, stems from the work that I've been doing over the last decade plus in what's called the sharing economy, which I'm guessing some listeners are familiar with. And we probably, if I were to ask 10 different people, what, you know, how would you define the, ten, the sharing economy? I'd get 10 different answers. So it's a very brief um, uh, definition or, or explanation of what I mean. And really, you know, the sharing economy is an economy that's based on shared goods and services and business models based on access rather than ownership. Now, to be clear, we're seeing a lot of growth in the business space, but keep in mind, you know, sharing is one of the oldest activities known to humankind. There's nothing new about it per se, um, and it's been alive in our backyards and our neighborhoods and our communities for a long time. When we talk about the digital sharing economy, we're really looking at the power of digital platforms to massively expand who and what we can connect and what we can share and on what scale. And so we are talking about home sharing and car sharing and co-working spaces and um, kitchen libraries and tool libraries. And, you know, there's quite a spectrum and there are tens of thousands of sharing economy platforms out there. But I've really been looking at how can we harness the sharing economy in ways that build a more inclusive economy that help people not only save money and earn income in new ways, but that also help us use resources more efficiently and more sustainably. And perhaps you know, as much, if not more important than any of this, those ways in which we can share and access goods and services in ways that build community, build social capital, and to Maria's point, build trust. So I get really excited about the ways in which sharing and direct access-based platforms could be leveraged further within the food system. You know, this is both peer-to-peer -peer or P2P as well as B2B solutions. Um, these platforms are disruptive because they can alter every part of the value chain. So access rather than ownership shifts power structures, ownership structures, control structures, and fundamentally, again, echoing back to what Maria was saying, they can shift value and what we value and why. And, you know, when done right, sharing economy business models can massively expand who is able to participate and who is able to benefit from um, not just innovation, but the economy as a whole. So in this light, and I mean, there are lots of examples I could tease out. I feel like I could probably spend all day on this because I'll, um, I'll run week-long workshops on the sharing economy. But a couple of things I wanted to bring up, specifically in the context of food and agriculture, because I find it fascinating and I don't have the answers yet. So in the last couple of years, there's been a new business model related to the sharing economy, related to the digital economy, but it's called a platform cooperative. Now, a platform cooperative blends the benefits of cooperative ownership with the efficiencies of digital platforms. So to put, to put this in really simple terms, imagine a driver-owned Uber or a host-owned Airbnb, right? And if either of those companies, I mean, Uber went public last year, Airbnb will at some point, 
those companies go public, you know, who benefits? Every single driver, not only the investors and shareholders. And, you know, when Uber went public last year at a valuation of $82 billion, there was a lot of backlash because not a single driver, it has tens of millions of drivers and not a single driver benefited. So I'm looking at this from the perspective of how do we build inclusive um, economies. Food and agriculture are one of the most popular sectors for cooperatives. How might this concept of a platform cooperative expand into the food system and help harness what the food system is already really good at and bring in more of the power of the digital economy? So that's you know one example that comes straight to mind. And another that I just want to bring up because I think it has incredible potential and it also makes me a little bit nervous. And that is simply the very big topic of um, automation, where you know we look at so many things in the food system and many other systems that can be automated and will be automated. And you know, interestingly, with COVID-19, there's actually, it looks like, a rush to automate now because going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, if a robot or a machine can't get sick, um, some of that human health risk goes away. So, you know, it's, it's very interesting that the bigger concern that a lot of us focused on the future of work are grappling with is what can be summarized by what's called the augment versus replace debate. <laughs> so if new technologies and, and automation and um, machine learning, et cetera, if these things are leveraged to augment human potential, then it's a win-win, right? If we, if humans and, and machines can do better together, what either of them could do on its own, awesome, not a problem. But if automation ends up replacing humans outright and doing so at scale, then again, we're really kind of in for trouble, not just lost livelihoods, but also increased inequality and potentially some real, you know, I don't want to say social crisis, but borderline, given that this would be happening against the backdrop of COVID-19 and job losses, it could get really, really ugly. So that's one of those technologies that I'm kind of looking at going, I'm excited. I think it has a huge amount of potential, but it doesn't come without its costs. Now, when it comes to VC, venture capital, um, I think actually that we're in the early stages of some pretty powerful shifts away from what we've historically gone after in the form of hockey stick returns and unicorn companies. Um, and we're shifting towards a much greater focus on sustainable and inclusive finance. And I think, you know, given COVID-19, again, it is serving in a, as an accelerant in this regard as well. So in some ways, this mirrors what I was talking about earlier in terms of the shift from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. Um, but more broadly, it's really looking at when we're looking at what kind of finance and what we're financing, that we really want to be looking much more from a holistic lens as opposed to, you know, what are the, what are the investments that can make the greatest short-term return despite having or likely having some negative externalities and long-term challenges, right? I mean, again, with all due respect to Uber, Uber went public last year. Um, Uber still doesn't have a sustainable business model. And many of the drivers would say it's a race to the bottom, right? That's a tension that we have. And that's straight VC. I'm looking at this more from like social VC. Um, I don't want to call it impact investing because that's another tricky term, but really looking holistically. And the one the one example I wanted to call out, because I think some listeners will find this quite, I hope, quite interesting. Um, the concept 
to learn about, to just Google. And the concept is this notion of a zebra company. Now, zebra companies are, by definition, an antidote to unicorns, right? Unicorns are these mythical figures that are in the forest that no one's really ever seen and they're worth more than a billion dollars, right? It's pretty hard to get that status. Zebras run in packs. They're black and white. They're very resilient. They've never been domesticated by hum humans. You know, it's, it's a fun you know, animal contrast. But what zebras represent, and many companies are now self-proclaiming themselves zebras, they, see, they seek to be sustainable over time. They seek to be very nimble and resilient and very much community oriented. And I bring this up because there are now zebra investors too. And you know, I think lots of people will have heard of impact investing and triple bottom line investing and so forth. Go check out the zebra movement because it's really, it's sort of simple and easy to understand. And I think we're in the early stages, like I said, of, of a shift away from unicorns, unicorns being the be all end all and much more, again, resilient, nimble, community oriented companies, which the zebra concept uh, embodies. So at the end of the day, bringing all of this back to sustainability, I think we need to look at investments and technologies through a range of lenses related to sustainability, right? Of course, we mean environmental sustainability. We also mean financial sustainability and social sustainability as well. So maybe even a move away from Shark Tank and, and getting into zebra uh, field or something. <laughs> I wonder, what's the like kind, the gentler fish? <laughs> right. right? Like, there is a zebra fish. Maybe, dolphin. you know, that's the... <laughs> a dolphin tank, right? Right. <laughs> Maria, what's your what are your thoughts here in terms of technology and, and venture capital um, being critical components to sustainability of the food industry? Um, venture capital is one of the it is one of the big uh, forces that are shaping the ag and food sector right now, and they have been for a while. And what is uh, noteworthy is that a lot of the investment is actually coming from outside of the sector because technology is so important in shaping the future. For example, building more resilient supply chains based on the learnings from this pandemic, there are critical questions. Uh, who should and who will bear the cost of innovation? And how will capital markets and governments respond to the challenge that we are experiencing right now? But if we take a, a step back and look at how science and technology are shaping the innovations of the future. As I said earlier on, it is still really the intersection of food science, biology, and technology. And by food science, I also mean ag and food science. So we will continue to see accelerated um, work uh, done by um, genetics, um, the cost of um, genetic sequencing is so low these days that continues to proliferate innovation in this space and actually drives much faster innovation. Also, we're going to see a lot more and faster adoption of the Internet of Things, wireless sensors, uh, all things that are driving more ubiquitous knowledge and creating platforms, collaboration and economic platforms that we cannot even imagine today. Also, we'll continue to see a lot of um, uh, accelerated innovation in agriculture, regenerative agriculture, 
indoor agriculture, which is also one of the areas that countries and nations are looking to to protect themselves to from food insecurity and also uh, robotics. Robotics and indoor agriculture, we should see an interplay there to accelerate and make indoor agriculture more financially scalable. To do all of this, we will need to create global standards. And that's why they, it is extremely important to have global collaboration when it comes to policy and when it comes to regulations, because these things will not function without without standards and without the ability to actually interconnect the different technology platforms and also the different the different um, uh, segments within um, the supply chain. I wanted to talk a little also about traceability. Traceability, not just as the ability to see where the product has been, chain of custody, but it, traceability is a backbone for building supply chain integrity and ultimately giving transparency and trust to the different stakeholders. Traceability can revolutionize the way that farmers are participating in the global economy today. Just with the use of the iPhone, the power of the iPhone, we can enable small-scale farmers and fishers to take part in the global economy and the global trade. And this is extremely important if we want to bring people out of poverty and if we want to be more of an equitable economy. Another area that is more in the traditional realm of agriculture and food is in new and novel and sustainable ingredients. The trend to consume more plant-based proteins, uh, algae, microalgae, tremendous work that we have seen recently on understanding uh, terrestrial and marine farms to boost production of natural natural plants like kelp, that they are highly nutritious. And of course, the further down uh, technologies that are required to actually convert these new ingredients into forms and uh, functionalities that will meet the requirements for local cuisines or cooking traditions and so forth. So there is so much opportunity in this space and it's very important that we embrace the options and we keep our eyes open and we work across science and culinary and economy and and you name it so that we can actually create this new world. I would like to, to highlight the importance of inclusivity in all of this, we need to learn from each other. We need to learn from not just the scientists, but we need to learn from people who um, know their local environment best and build reservoirs of knowledge that are going to help us see the world through different eyes. And one thing that has caught my attention recently is the representation or the lack of representation of women in um, the agri-food venture capital arena. According to a study of last year, in 2018, only 16% of agri-food tech deals went to startups founded with at least one female founder, and startups that they were founded by female only, females only, they fared worse. Actually, they only got 7% of deal activity and just the 3% of the funding. So as we 
as we develop, as we adopt and drive technology, both in the realm of agriculture and food and in digital and data technology, it is very important to drive for inclusivity, both in terms of uh, gender inclusivity, but also in terms of different stakeholders, people in different parts of the world, and and wisdom that is specific to specific parts of the world. So I think this is very important. Inclusivity, we need to think different about what inclusivity means and how we can use the wisdom of the many so that we can um, we can be most effective in the changes that we want to make and we need to make. Matt, can I chime in here? Absolutely. Yeah, Maria is a great um, handoff, whether or not you realized it. <laughs> Interesting coming back to the zebra concept. And, you know, I'm not, I'm broadly speaking, I'm an, I'm an advocate of the zebra concept, but I don't, you know, I don't run a company that's a, that's um I, I don't have any direct interest in in the the organizations and so forth. It's it's speaking exactly to what you're talking about. So the zebra, the entire movement was actually founded by female entrepreneurs, all of whom have had and have startups, um, all of whom were acknowledging that even outside of um, the food systems and agriculture space and ag tech, women receive on average, 5% of all venture capital funds hmm. every year. And 5% is up from where it was you know, a few years ago. So there's an enormous disconnect and a distortion in terms of who's founding companies and who's, who's funding companies and what those companies, how they're geared. So these were, you know, and the zebra company movement, as you might think of it as, you know, built by men and women for everyone, but women have always had a key seat at that table because collectively they realize that there's a very clear, consistent, and persistent systemic distortion around entrepreneurship, VC funding, and the and as well as the kinds of companies that were that we're building. So I wonder, you know, I think about it, and it's not that food-related businesses are candidly over or underrepresented within the zebra movement. There are some there, but there might be a nice, I'm thinking about how do we connect these dots and sort of give listeners and others a chance to to move forward with some tangible, maybe not solutions, but some tangible next steps. And I think that, that the gap you're describing is something I absolutely see. I think it's actually exacerbated uh, from some of the numbers you were sharing in the, the food and ag space. But there's also this parallel set of conversations and initiatives and investment funds that are emerging to help, I don't want to say close the gap, but help rebalance this distortion somewhat. Yeah. And April, I, I actually wanted to share a quote from your website that I think kind of jives really well with, with what you're saying in terms of wanting almost to, to be an enabler for some of these communities. So I'm going to, I'm going to quote you. I'm not going to do like an impersonation or anything, (laughs) but, but it it reads like this. It was here that I began in earnest to make my life experience, my life work, empowering others, bringing ideas and people and funding and smart policies together, rethinking how business is done and creating greater impact than mere financial returns. I'm curious if you wouldn't mind reflecting on that and and maybe provide some advice for professionals that work in the food industry and work to innovate for our future food supply. 
Yeah, it, it was a pretty good tee up, I have to admit. Quote, <laughs> 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 wow. Um, and these things are it's entirely spontaneous in terms of today's how today's conversation is unfolding, but it's really lovely. And, uh, you know, I will say, and, and I think some of this is in my bio, but I often find people are like, wait, what, what is it that you do and did and so forth? And just to be clear, I spent, you know, the first 15 years of my professional career focused exclusively on emerging markets, the base of the economic pyramid, but also inclusive finance and financial innovation. And so concepts like microfinance and funding those entrepreneurs and those micro enterprises, which were fantastic business ideas, but they wouldn't get funding from anyone because they were deemed to be unbankable. And they were deemed to be unbankable, not because of any lack of talent. Actually, some of the most talented people I know and some of the best business ideas I've seen have come from people who were deemed to be unbankable or underbanked simply for when and where they were born, right? So they just, you know, you when you find yourself in that environment, and here we're talking not just about emerging markets, but a lot of developing and what would be deemed ultra poor countries, right? And so I got into that space very, very young. Um, I was raised very much in a household where cultural diversity was celebrated, and so was global travel and the global perspective. So had that as values growing up, but then really got interested in all of the different ways in which we could tackle these distorted systems, which weren't always intentionally you know, it wasn't like people designed them with bad intentions. It's that in a lot of cases, these were post-colonial systems that repeated a, a very unequal society. But when colonialism ended, it wasn't as though the colonized countries were left with a, a lot of funding or infrastructure. And so you start looking at how do you build something better than what was there before? But that took time and effort and so forth. And so, you know, that theme, even though I'm no longer working directly in microfinance, it has been a very clear through thread in my entire career of looking at what are those, you know, we, we take for granted, like, well, this is the way we do business because this is how it's always been, been done. And you take a hard look at that and you say, why? And, and you realize that a lot of things are no longer fit for purpose. And that a lot of things don't necessarily serve the people you'd like them to serve. And if we can, back to the quote, you know, bring the right people, ideas, funding and policies together, which does require a kind of convening power. And this goes back to um, power. My, I don't mean to refer to power in my, my own power, but convening capacity. This goes back to my role as that sort of bumblebee where that's what I've spent years doing, talking to different communities to figure out who needs to be in conversation with one another, because by and large, they're often not. Everyone's siloed in their own discipline. So that's kind of a little bit of how I got to see the world as that quote describes. And then in terms of, you know, professionals working in the food industry as they work to innovate and really gearing this around innovation, but also how do we think beyond our own discipline? How do we think about what we do in this broader context of bringing together not just people and ideas and technology and science and funding and smart policies, but how do we sort of also start to look at what is our shared vision? So in that light, I think a couple things that I'll share, and again, I, I love this topic, um, <laughs> I'll try to keep it brief, but I do think, and we touched a little bit on this, Maria touched a little bit on it before, and I want to echo it and, and take it a little further. We need to remember that innovation as a thing 
it doesn't happen in a vacuum and it doesn't happen in a silo. It's really nested within a much bigger ecosystem. And we need to look at this whole ecosystem and the way, specifically for food science, the ways in which food science innovation necessarily depends on other kinds of innovation. So for food science innovation to succeed, it needs effective policy innovation, it needs effective business model innovation, and so on. So it needs these other kinds of innovation which aren't in its ambit, but they're sort of running in parallel and they're all part of the same ecosystem. It needs all of those to be playing out and succeeding over time. So what I mean by this is that we really need to not only be looking at what you're doing, but looking outside your own domain and building cross-disciplinary networks and expertise. So for example, if you develop an amazing solution, you know, and in the food science space, it could be for a new ingredient, a new product, a new high nutrient um, offering, it could be many different things. You develop this solution, but you know that it's going to require partnership or it's going to require policy reform or it's going to require a new delivery or pricing model to succeed. Then are you making sure that those innovations are already underway? And I realize that, you know, you've got, they're like, oh my goodness, I have enough to do in a given day. That's not my job. The fact is, if you want your innovation to succeed, you need to start building that network of collaborators and stakeholders who share your vision. I think of them as sort of not just partners, but they're allies in your quest. And so not only does this save yourself and those whom you wish to serve later on saves you a lot of time and frustration later on, because ultimately you'll figure out, oh, the great product, but we didn't think hard enough about what partners we're going to work with. We didn't think hard enough about what policy we're going to think about. You know, we, we get to those points later on in the road or later down the line, and, and it ends up wasting time, resources, frustration. The sooner you can start doing that, the better, because it does take time, but it does lead to, you know, again, this might sound a little bit trite, but I love the, I love the concept of, you know, one plus one equals 11. And when you can line up one plus one plus one plus one, and it only takes you know one person in these other domains to get started, the power of what you can achieve together is you know expanded exponentially. So that's one thing. I think another thing that that comes to mind, and that I I always like to be a little bit provocative about because I I do a lot of advising and speaking on this topic of innovation, but I'm also really cautious to remind people that the definition of innovation simply means something new. Now, innovation does not mean that it's inherently good or bad or smart or, or unwise or you know, anything else. It's, it just means something new. And we've seen countless examples of innovation that can be either helpful or harmful, depending on how that innovation is designed, how it's marketed, and the intentions behind those who use or promote it. So that's a whole other topic. Usually when I sort of plant that, people are like, oh, okay, let me think about that. And I kind of feel like today I'll be like, just think about that, that food scientists, I look at the, the profession, you have incredible power at your fingertips. You have power that you can use for incredible good, and you have power that actually can lead to unhealthy, unwelcome outcomes as well. And so for me, it's always about what are those unintended consequences? What are those blind spots? How much can I do in advance to prevent 
those negative potential consequences from coming about or, or even being possibilities. So that's, you know, those are the things that come to mind. The only other one, which I've talked about before, so I don't um, need to go into too much detail here, but it just really is when we think about innovation, to be thinking ever more about it from a stakeholder approach, right? I think innovation often, and, and, and to some degree, rightly so, innovation is about serving the customer. And yes, customers absolutely matter. But we also need to think about the other stakeholders that are part of this ecosystem within which we're innovating. And in that regard, I, I like to just put out the challenge of how can we innovate in ways that not only are good for customers, but that also help workers, suppliers, local communities, and Mother Nature. You know, they, they really we innovate in a way that truly builds a more resilient and a more sustainable world. Oh. Maria, what, what's your advice here? I couldn't agree more. It's been wonderful to, um, to hear April outline her view of innovation. It is indeed innovation is about building knowledge and creating an ecosystem so that you know how you can maximize the benefit of what you're designing. It is the whole system, the sector, our sector is food, the science and technology that will drive those um, those uh, new products and new services, the whole approach. We need to be mindful of outcomes and the impact of these outcomes and to take into account the stakeholders. Uh, April mentioned a multitude of stakeholders, and it is important to actually think hard about some unintended consequences. You know, who is influencing the, you know, the, the, the behaviors of the people that the innovation is intended for. What is the role of education? What's the role of government? What is the role of NGOs in certain parts of the world? So it is so important to be holistic in our approach and building a, an ecosystem for success. It is better to do more work up front to have success later on rather than apply what we have always applied and going for speed without necessarily uh, achieving the best results. So I couldn't agree more. Um, very important to um, engage the stakeholders and to be optimistic in building a future that is going to be different from what we have today. Well, I think that's a really good place to leave it. I want to thank you both for your time and your thoughts and a great conversation. And I want to thank our listeners. If you're interested in further exploring the topic of sustainability and our global food supply, join us at IFT20 online, July 13th through 15th, 2020, where we'll explore the following question. Is our food system the single biggest threat to the environment and our survival? For more information, visit iftevent.org to learn more about the exciting and thought-provoking program planned for this year's virtual event. You cannot afford to miss it. And if you're enjoying Food Disruptors, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or by connecting with IFT. You can find us at IFT on Twitter and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to Food Disruptors. I'm your host, Matt Teagarden. Have a great day, everyone.